So today, it's a, uh, you saw the video, things can be blurry sometimes. It can be hard to find a focus. I think it, it can be a confusing time to be alive, um, especially if you have any desire to do things like study history and how it relates to the present and the future. It can be difficult if you're trying to be educated and informed, have some well-thought-out opinions, or even have some original thoughts, heaven forbid. It, it can be confusing if you're trying to pursue truth with a small t or truth with a capital T. It can be confusing if you're trying to explore spirituality or faith in any way in your life. And I think in large part the confusion comes because these days anyone can have a voice if they want to. Take social media, blogs, video, live streaming. It's a cool thing. Take stuff like YouTube and TikTok. I love that brilliant creative people have an outlet for their creativity and their brilliance, especially since they can make some money off of it, which is great. But these days everyone is a journalist. Everyone is an expert. Everyone can have influence, even if everything they say is 100% wrong. So how do we wade through it all, right? So even those who feel like they have a pretty good handle on things, it's confusing. And confusion can and does very quickly make its way into the church. And in some ways, the truths that we stand on, truths that we are attempting to live by, are under the microscope because as the world changes some of those truths can come into direct conflict with how people choose to live or want to allow others to live. And there are certain topics, although they're not more important, although they're not emphasized more in Scripture, they oftentimes require additional attention from time to time. They require clarification. And sometimes that quest for clarity can create tension. But even in that tension, clarity can also create confidence. It can create confidence in knowing exactly who you're talking to and where they stand on a specific issue. What's this place I'm walking into? What is this healthcare facility about? What do they value? What do they prioritize? What about um, this counselor that I'm going to see? What, what are they about? What about this church that I'm walking into today? What, where do they stand on some of these big issues? Some, and clarity can create some confidence in those scenarios. Clarity can create confidence in knowing who God is and what he's called us to, what he's created us for. It can create confidence that even in the face of some of that tension and confusion and struggle in our lives, we can have confidence that he'll carry us through if we trust him enough to pursue life his way, by his will and by his love. He can give us the words, he can give us the grace and the patience and the wisdom and the endurance that we need to not only know the truth and believe the truth, but live the truth. And it's that pursuit of clarity that brings us to our topic today, the topic of marriage and sexuality. By far, the most common question we get in environments like Fieldstone 101 that Joe was talking about, where people just curious, hey, what, what does the church feel about this thing and that thing? This is by far the most common question that we get. It's a topic that's incredibly diverse. It's a wide-ranging topic. So here's what I'm hoping to do today as we hit this topic First, I hope to give you an overview about what we believe the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. For those who are studying, maybe searching for their stance on the issue, maybe for their uh, response to others who have taken stances on the issue, I'm hoping to provide some clarity on what we as a church believe on this particular topic, what I as your lead pastor believe on this topic. For those who are potentially maybe find your life moving in a different direction than what we talk about this morning. I hope that we can provide some clarity regarding what God desires for your life, what he offers, even in the midst of a tension that might feel you leaving anything from confused to scared to angry when it comes to this topic. 
And for those who maybe love someone deeply who's living with that tension, who's navigating this topic in life, I want to echo the question of the great 20th century theologian Francis Schaeffer who asked, how should we then live? This has to be more than a doctrinal statement. How we live the truth is of utmost importance, no matter how difficult the topic, because we cannot diminish the value of those whose impression of Jesus and his church will be greatly impacted by the words spoken, the way they are spoken, and most importantly, the way that they are lived. As we get towards the end of our time today, I'm going to talk briefly about some of the specific verses and passages, but those Specific passages won't be the focus this morning because I think we have to see and understand that this topic, this issue, is way bigger than individual verses and proof texts, things that we can take and prove our point or win a specific debate. This is a topic, this is a theme that I think is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture and of God's plan to restore humanity. And so I want to start with an important question What's the Bible about? What's the Bible for? Like, well, what's, I mean, there's 66 books, all kinds of authors, 1,200 pages in my copy here. What's the Bible about? All these different things. Well, I've got a, a four-part answer for you on that question. What's the Bible about? The first thing, the Bible presents God's plan and purpose for his creation. Second thing, the Bible presents God's desire for and pursuit of a relationship with humans who are the crown jewel of his creation. What's the Bible about? The third thing is the Bible describes our rejection of God's plan and purpose and the loss of our relationship with him as a direct consequence of that rejection. And then finally, the Bible expresses the lengths to which God will go in order to restore that relationship and restore the supremacy of his plan and his purpose. Now you take those four answers, you take those four themes, and throughout the Bible, these major themes play out in, in the examples of lots of different people, lots of different nations, lots of stories involved there, but they also get expressed in a very specific way using the human relationship of marriage as a picture of God's pursuit of us and his relationship with us. This plays out in the very beginning, we see it play out at the very end, and we see it play out in various places Throughout. And so we're going to start at the beginning, back at Genesis chapter 2, and we see this theme starting to be woven into the fabric of Scripture. Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, for the man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed, it up with, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame." 
So the very first thing God did in the lives of humans was to create a relationship between them. It was sacred, it was secure, it was intimate, it was loving, and it was committed. And as it describes them as man and woman, the words used in the original language describe distinct, unique, very complementary qualities. It was a union so tight, so powerful, they would be like one life, one organism. In the beginning was a beautiful marriage between man and woman, a bride and a groom, and in that moment, everything was perfect. Perfect relationship between God and humans, perfect relationship between Adam and Eve. That was in the beginning. So now how about the end? We'll go to the very end in Revelation chapter 21. And we see this play out a little bit again. Revelation 21, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Jump down to verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so we see in Genesis the very first thing God did in the lives of humans was to create a relationship between them as bride and groom. And we see here in Revelation that the very last thing God does in the lives of humans on earth will be to solidify forever a relationship between he, a groom, and us, his bride. It's a relationship that's beautiful and sacred. It's secure and intimate, loving and forever. It's a union so tight, so powerful. And so just like in the beginning, in the end is a beautiful marriage between bride and groom. And in that moment, everything is once again Perfect, perfect relationship between all humans, perfect relationship between God and his people. And so in a very beautiful, very specific way, as the Bible seeks to express that powerful relationship that God desires with his people, it begins and ends with a picture of marriage, a loving, sacrificial groom and a beautiful, sanctified, set-apart bride brought together in perfect union. And in the 1,000 pages between beginning and end, is a story of how God the groom pursues us and how we should pursue him in order to experience his best both now and in eternity. And so as we take a few minutes to highlight some of the specific verses that we typically go to on this topic, they clarify God's design for marriage and sex, but we can't forget the bigger picture of what marriage and sex represent. They represent the union and reunion between God and his people. Human marriage is designed to be a picture of that union. Man and woman come together relationally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. They come together as a reflection of the full image of God and his relationship with his people. Now, on one hand, I believe that level of symbolism is enough. On the other hand, this topic is a really big deal and it has a far-reaching impact on so many lives, so we need as much clarity as possible and I believe God provides that clarity. 
So I want to go now to Matthew chapter 19. This is Jesus speaking, and he's addressing a question specifically about divorce. Um, The Pharisees here, like many times before, are asking questions that they believe has no perfect answer, and they believe that if they can get him to give an answer anything less than perfect, they'll nail him. And so the question is about divorce, but bigger than that, it's about the nature and value of marriage. So Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus here quotes the Genesis account word for word, and in doing so he affirms the original nature of it, the deep intimacy of it, the permanence of it, and the spiritual side of it. And so now, not only do we see marriage and sexuality designed a specific way in the beginning as a picture of God and his people, and glorified in a specific way in the end as a picture of God and his people, we see it affirmed by Jesus himself in the middle. Beyond that, there are other places in the Old Testament and New Testament that directly address sexual activity that falls outside of God's design. And I'll, we'll, put them, uh, the, we'll list them on the screen. I, I want to encourage you to write them down, take a picture of the screen, come back to the talk later and listen again and grab them. Um, it's important that you do additional study on your own on this, right? This is the, the topic deserves more from you. The people affected deserve more from you, right? The world deserves more from the church than us simply taking the word of one man standing on a stage. This needs to be you going and digesting this on your own as well. And so what we see, we see God's thoughts expressed first in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. This is where God is laying out his plans for the new Jewish nation that's taking hold of the promised land. And in addition to so many other things, God says, this is what sex should look like. This is what it should never look like. This is how it's valued by me. This is how it should be valued by you. And no, we don't live by Levitical law. Like We we live in the age of grace. Jesus has come and ushered in a new covenant for us. And yet, these passages, even in the Old Testament, give us a glimpse at how God views key areas of relationships and life. In Romans 1, the book of Romans is a letter that Paul is sending to the Romans to describe the power and the scope of the gospel and how we can experience its transformational impact in our lives. Paul starts out in Romans 1 describing just how far humans continue to fall, specifically when we choose to ignore the reality of a creator God who longs for a relationship with us, a relationship on his terms. And in this chapter, Paul describes the freedom that God gives us to either choose him and his way or choose our way and experience the inevitable consequences that come with it. In 1 Corinthians chapters 6 and 7, once again, Paul is affirming God's design and standard for sex. He says it is physical. It is spiritual. God does have a design and standard for sex. And when we step outside of God's design for any area of life, it is sin. In 1 Timothy 1, we see the issue of obedience come up. And it says that anywhere from, and it gives a list of things, and they're not all big and messy. Some of them are very subtle, things that we like to hide as Christians. Anywhere from lying to slavery to sexuality, He says, if we reject God's will for our lives, we miss out on the transformative work that he wants to do in us. And then in Hebrews 13, once again, it elevates the marriage relationship and the need to protect the honor, value, and purity 
of that relationship in all of these passages and throughout the Bible. For any sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship, it's always talked about with a tone of brokenness and grief, and it's defined as something that falls outside of God's plan for humanity. Why is this consistency significant? Because consistency helps with clarity. It means that we can't view this topic as a cultural thing or something that we've evolved or grown beyond as a planet because we see that it was God's design in the garden in the beginning. It was God's design for ancient Jewish culture in the Old Testament law. It was God's design for first century Jews and their very religious culture. It was God's design for first century Romans and their very secular culture. I believe that God was consistent through all of those various times and cultures and there's no evidence that he would feel differently now. Now, over the years, there's been a lot of questioning about the meaning behind some of these individual passages. There's there's debate about uh, the definition of individual words, what they meant in that language, in that culture, what they should be translated as in our language, in our culture. And honestly, that's true of a lot of different scriptural contexts. We're talking about thousands of years in some cases and multiple languages being transferred into, into other multiple languages. And so it can be difficult. And some of the topics that get discussed are very big topics. For me, I I respect the road that some theologians have taken as they come to different conclusions about various theological topics. I would throw baptism in there. I would throw the role of women in church leadership in there. I would throw uh, revelation and how the end times play out in there. I I would say I, I may disagree even strongly in some cases, but I can see the biblical path that people have taken to arrive at different conclusions. I cannot say the same about this topic. I believe that the Bible is clear. Even if you eliminate the passages with debatable interpretations and words that we can uh, debate on, there is still a consistent message about how God designed marriage. And there is still a consistent message about how God views sex outside of marriage. And there's still the powerful symbolism that marriage provides from the first page to the last page. I believe scripture begins and ends with a picture of marriage as an institution ordained by God. It is designed as the union of one man and one woman in a lifelong, faithful, covenantal relationship, and sex is to be experienced within that relationship only. That one way is stated and affirmed by, among others, Moses and Paul and Jesus. And if one way is clearly God's plan, purpose, and design, then any other way is outside of God's plan, purpose, and design. And any other way ultimately produces something that it always produces. It produces a lesser, broken version of the life that God designed for us. So then what do we do about this? Right? Remember, this has to be more than knowledge. This has to be more than our side of a debate. So what do we do with this? I want to break it up. And and first, for those of you who maybe find yourselves in the choir this morning, I'd say no matter what you or I may believe, there are people hurting and struggling over this. We must remember that there are those around us who have in many ways lived lives of great pain, confusion, and rejection. And just as Jesus went out of his way to reach the people no one else wanted to reach, We are called to humbly share his love that's embodied in the gospel. We're called to lift them up in prayer, to allow the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction and healing and transformation. All people are desperately in need of Jesus. 
And they deserve to know the love and compassion of Christ as shown through his people. Yes, many churches and Christians have failed to teach a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. But many churches and Christians in the midst of a doctrinal fight have failed to love and walk alongside those who need it the most. We have to love. So how do we do that? Right? Because only Jesus has found that perfect balance, that perfect fullness of truth and love. So in our quest for that balance, how do we, how do we love? It's hard, right? Because this is personal. This is personal for you. It's personal for your family. It's personal for friends of yours. It's personal for your personal beliefs. So some things I, need, I think we need to keep in mind as members of the choir this morning, recognizing that there are people walking through real life. How do we love? I think the first thing we need to remember is that the gospel must be your primary focus. The truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what his death did for us in our sins, what his resurrection means for our life here on earth and in eternity. The gospel must be your primary focus because changing behavior is worthless. Changing behavior is impossible before Jesus takes over. Pray for the soul, pray for salvation, and everything else comes next. Second thing ties in with that. The gospel is always and only expressed with love. What I'm going to say next, I believe 100%. Okay? We're all going to giggle, but I believe it to be true. If Jesus was an active member of our church, I believe I would get emails from other people with concerns about who he spends his time with. Does that mean that we fellowship with anyone at any time? No. There's wisdom. There's discernment. There's balance. But do we need to be in relationships with people who need Jesus? Absolutely, yes, we do. We have to be ready to love. The gospel is always and only expressed with love. And on top of that, I want to say, if you're not sure how to respond, be generous with grace. Seek to understand. Be quick to listen and very slow to speak. And if you're stuck not sure which path to take, which answer to give, how to respond. Don't do anything but love until you have a compelling next step. Don't do anything but love until you have a compelling next step. If you're not sure how to respond, be generous with grace. And then the last thing I'd say is this. Defend the truth, absolutely. But be slow to evaluate others' application of the truth. You don't know how you'd handle it if it was your friend, your family, your loved one, your life. You don't know how you would respond. You don't know the decision you made. You don't know if you would attend or not attend, if you would go or not go, if you would invite or not. You don't know how you would respond if it was you. And even if you've walked that path in your own unique way, you don't know the uniqueness of their situation and their conversations and their struggles and their quest for balance and wisdom and their attempt to live love and grace. The response to truth is always going to be messy, but the Bible leaves room for freedom in the response. There's room for wisdom. There's room for grace. There's room for common sense. There's room for understanding the dynamics of a specific situation because every person is unique and every person's situation is unique. Every person's struggle is unique. As the years go by, we as a church, we will we'll continue to stand 
on what's true, but our responses to real-life situations will be messy at times. Not always going to make the perfect decision. We're not always going to do what everyone thinks is best. We can't satisfy every opinion and every view of every specific situation, but there's room for that. And so part of the reason for, for providing this clarification today is I want you to know that as, as a church, as we wrestle with real-life situations, it won't represent a change in what the Bible says is true. It's simply our attempt to apply what the Bible says is true. There may be those uh, here this morning, maybe watching sometime later, who would say, Justin, I'm, I'm living out something different than what you've defined. So how do I go forward with this? I'd say first, you need to know that God loves you with an everlasting, unconditional love. And through salvation and the work of his Holy Spirit, God can empower you to live according to his design and his standard. And in the midst of that, he can offer the grace to accept your true identity, not any human identity, but as his son or daughter in Christ. It might be hard to believe, but this is not about condemnation. It's about recognizing the life that God designed for us and that he called us to. And in Christ, we're not asked to carry the weight of guilt and brokenness, and we're certainly not asked to put that weight on others, but at the same time, it is a standard. And if we claim to be in Christ, we're saying that he's the Lord of my life. And in that belief, we have to ask ourselves the question, does Jesus have a say in my life? Is he the authority? And if my answer is yes, I must embrace his truth and say, Jesus, I believe you. It's tough, I'm struggling, I'm confused, I'm scared, I'm angry, but regardless of circumstances, regardless of context, I'm going to embrace what you're telling me. It's hard, but I accept it. And that's the beginning, because that's the beginning of any conversation with God, saying, God, you know better than me. You are God, and I'm not. And I'm committed to doing life your way, even if it's going to require sacrifice. And so I want to encourage you, embrace his freedom. Not freedom from the struggle necessarily, but freedom from the guilt and shame that are often associated with the struggle. And it doesn't matter if the issue is anger or dishonesty or greed or gossip or stealing. It doesn't matter if it's mouthing off to your parents or lust or addiction or divorce or adultery, whatever, we all fall short of the standard. But here's an amazing promise that God gives us in Romans 5. He says, where the struggle is great, where the pain is great, where the confusion is great, God shows up that much more in our lives. Paul even talked about his thorn in the flesh, clearly some issue in his life that he longed to be freed from, but God chose to allow him to experience a different level of grace in the midst of the struggle. Embrace his offer of freedom, even if it's a struggle, he continues to ask you to walk through. And then I'd say this, don't do it alone. Connect with people you trust. Be honest where it's safe to be honest. If you need to, connect with a Christian faith-based counselor, not some joker in a back alley, a professional with a faith-based approach. And don't leave Jesus out of the equation. He made you he loves you. He wants to see you thrive and potentially maybe even use your story to impact others. It's a very important truth in the midst of that because God, when God calls us to step out of our way, step out of our thinking and step into his way and his design, 
Sometimes we feel like we're leaving something behind that we need, right? This is something that I need to get through. This is something that I'm supposed to experience. But here's a very important truth. Your deepest needs and desires will only ever be met in Christ. Your deepest needs and desires will only ever be met in Christ. It's true for any of us. And if following Jesus requires a major change for you, there is an amazing life in Christ that's available to you, even if it looks different than the story you might write for yourself. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to mess with us around some of these things. God, may we not get lazy in our belief, lazy in our doctrine. God, may we dig and read and process. And God, most of all, seek to live out the love that you've shown us. God, you went all the way with your love. You didn't just say you loved us. You stepped out and you made the ultimate sacrifice so we could experience your love and live your love. And so God, help us to do the same. To not just know the truth, to not just believe the truth, but to live the truth, all of the truth, God. Not just the truth that we're good at, but everything that you're calling us to. And most of all, God, help us to love. May the world look at us and see you not as a finger-wagging, angry old man in the clouds, but as a God of love who has created us and has amazing things in mind for us if we'll simply turn to him and say, I believe you. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I recognize that um, the scope and, and specific application of a topic like today, it, it's incredibly wide and diverse, and it's impossible to speak to each individual scenario. So I've put together a list of resources that I think can help you at, at very least take some, some steps in your understanding of this topic and more importantly, how to live out the truth of this topic um, out in the real world and, and how to grow in response to what God has to say. Um, all of them are available. We've got a, a page on the website, fieldstonechurch.org audio. It's where we always stick the audio file of each sermon uh, if you scroll to the bottom of that page, there's a list of resources available that address kind of some various topics, marriage, sexuality, uh, even some resources to help process uh, life around the LGBTQ plus and things of that nature. Um, there's also a paper version at the info center table. Feel free to grab that. But on the website, all of the different resources are linked to where you can find those, whether it's Amazon or Right Now Media, YouTube, things like that. Definitely dig into those. Um, and I want to encourage you, if you look at that sheet, um, there's a miscellaneous resource. It's called Respectable Sins by a guy named Jerry Bridges. That is recommended for those of you who think you've got it all figured out. Right? It's really easy to go, that's messy, that's bad, they need to fix that. All the while, you're a little bit busy over here with a lack of faith or a dishonest mouth or a biting tongue. Some of the things that we as Christians can hide beneath the surface and pretend like we're great. Go read Respectable Sins. We're actually going to spend a couple weeks on it around Thanksgiving to make sure that this church doesn't walk out of here feeling like the, uh, the sins that end up on Fox News are the only ones that we care about. Um, my goal is to make each and every one of you uncomfortable at some point in the near future, uh, no matter what those issues are. <laughs> Um, if you have any questions about the resources or if you're looking for maybe something more specific to a, a situation that you're navigating, let us know. Um, just as important, feel free to contact with me for clarification on anything that we talked about today. That's true of any topic in any week. We'd love to chat. Um, 
I'll stay up here for a bit after service if you have questions, but I know it's hard to stick around sometimes. Um, so always up for coffee or a phone call. Let us know. We can set that up. Not available for a debate, but to simply clarify where we stand as a church on this topic and maybe help you navigate some of the practical implications for life in the real world. Um, I know this is personal for a lot of you in a lot of different ways, so we want to provide personal support as much as we can. So that's all for today. You guys have a great afternoon. See ya.